Okay. Let's get started. It should be should be time. Um, so we're going to do today is go through uh, Peking Opera and Kabuki. We'll start with Kabuki since it's, uh, you know, in its in its modern form at least uh, has older sources, kind of, um, and also was earlier on our syllabus. So yeah, we're playing a little bit of catch up, um, and. We will do that. Uh, hopefully, we'll get through everything today, uh, and then from there on Monday we are moving on to moving on to to George Buchner and uh, Wojtek. So that'll be fun. I'll I'll post that reading. It's pretty short. Let's see. Um, Yeah, it, it's short. It's less than thirty pages, so it'll be be a quick read. Um, I'd advise take a look at the the Albenberg opera. Um, you don't have to look at the whole thing, but you know, type into YouTube Berg B E R G, and then Voidzek, and uh, and you will uh, see some hear some interesting music, uh, just to give you an idea of the the play's character. Okay. Um, any questions outside of that? Any questions about the assignment coming up? All right. Sounds good. So let's jump into it then. And what we're going to do, we'll, we'll do a little presentation on Kabuki, um, which has some similarities with No, but also has some kind of stark differences here. So you can see here, Kabuki, Theater for the Common Man. Uh, this is um, somewhat true, at least in its, its conception, that Kabuki was really a place for kind of lower-born people. However, samurai, who were considered part of the upper class, uh, kept trickling in to see it. And so while No has this religious origin coming out of um, Shinto and then later Buddhist temples, uh, and then being performed for the uppity-uppities of the court, Kabuki really begins in the street. Um, and it's different. Some background, I could have just said background instead of background history. But anyway, so the Togawa Shogunate is established in 1603, and that lasts uh, for, until 1867, when basically you have the the emperor established, and you have now the um, you have the opening of Japan when Commodore Perry visits in the late 1850s, and a lot of political change occurs from the 1850s basically up until 1945, in which case Japan stabilizes again. Um, but before then, before 1603, you really had a collection of battling shogunates, that, uh, shoguns rather, that lasted for centuries. It was a, a bloody time, and then when the uh, Togagawa shogunate takes power, 
he, and here's a picture of him or picture, a statue of him. Um, what you see is the establishment of everybody in their place. Um, the, the, they say the borders are closed. That's not exactly accurate. Japan traded uh, quite readily with Korea and China. It also traded with the Dutch. The Dutch had a, a port they were allowed into in the northern part of Japan, um, even though they, I don't think they were ever allowed to leave the dock. They could only touch down on the dock. So they were still a trading play, a, a trading country, but um, you now didn't have people moving from, like, let's say, north to south. Uh, and the reason here is the reason for that is that you then couldn't gather armies. A, a shogun in the south couldn't organize troops to go attack someone else, and um, you also had people separated from gunpowder. Gunpowder was only produced in one part of Japan, uh, and this results in a, a sort of repressive peace. You do you don't have a lot of freedom of movement, but you're not living in a, in a warring collection of uh, in an empire filled with a warring collection of people. Um, and uh, yeah, so that that is that. Uh, we call this the Edo period. Edo is the original name of Tokyo. Uh, and it's when you had a kind of a cap the capital established there. Um, good. And it's around just at the beginning of the Edo period that we begin to see kabuki. Um, and our first kabuki performer ever is Akuni, who begins to perform in the the city of Kyoto. I don't know if anybody knows uh, Kyoto, but you know it's it's. Um, a major city, not as major as Tokyo, but outside of there. And uh, there was a dry riverbed, and she built a stage there and began to, to dance on it. And um, this became very popular. Other women, uh, Kyoto was a, Kyoto is known as a, a, a kind of a geisha town. And so a lot of um, geisha and maika, geisha, geisha apprentices, began to dance with her. Uh, you know, it's kind of... Uh, a mixture of truth and legend. This was a real woman. This really happened. Um, but as to you know why they were dancing, um, what the the intent kind of varies. However, it was very very popular. People loved to go to this dry riverbed and watch these women dance. Um, this style became known as ona kabuki or women's kabuki. Kabuki, I believe, means like tilting dance, uh, and that was that's the origin of it. It's with we have like. A woman who did it in a particular place in particular time, um, and as it became more organized, uh, more and more people would go to it. It was originally for kind of the lower class people. No, it was for the upper class people. But the samurai class, which is the upper class, the samurais are, you know, they're not. It's not exactly um, uh, like a Kurosawa film. Samurais were originally warriors in Japan, but over time they become the people who fill in the different roles in government. They become the, like the bureaucratic class. Uh, so they're therefore connected to the courts and and the court life. And, and when they start coming to these quote-unquote lower class venues, um, that begins to attract a lot of attention and a lot of problems, right? Because now you have mixing of classes. And, uh, you know, that that is often frowned upon. Um, so what ends up happening is um, Kabuki ends up 
attracting a lot of of prostitutes um, and people who are considered low or of low status. Uh, I, I don't don't mean low in value, but low in status. Low, you know, you're you're dealing with a, a hierarchical society. Um, so they they then passed a law outlawing women on stage in, in 1629 out of a fear of um, of prostitutes. Uh, kabuki takes up residence. A lot of kabuki theaters move into these districts known as ikiyu or floating world. They're on the water, but they're also known. It, it's sort of the term for um, red light district. We use the term red light to mean a place where uh, uh, markets of ill repute occur. Um, in Japan, they also have red light districts called, as I said here, floating world. Ikiyu, and this is where a lot of kabuki theater um, gravitates to. So you could see how different this is from other theater traditions in Japan, the theater traditions we've been looking at, which move from basically religious venues into court venues or court venues into back into religious venues, right? Depending on what century you're in, either they're outlawing performance at court or and then the, the performers go and become monks and bring their performance traditions there, or the monks and performers with their their performance tradition establish a theater and um, the the court goes to that theater. That seems to be a lot of what different types of Japanese theater, especially no theater, was doing. Kabuki is a different animal. Kabuki really is a theater from a theater outside of the courts. It's really a theater that ha uh, has a lot of um, market interaction going on for it. It's really, it's really kind of uh, needs to be sponsored by uh, customers rather than courtly patrons. Um, and it also has a lot of ill repute, a lot of rumors and, and things like that. Um, what ends up happening is in 1629, the young young boys start taking women's roles and the young boys start acting as prostitutes. They start prostituting themselves. And so that um, that kind of creates a, a moral panic. And by 1652, the young boys are banned from stage. You also had, uh, you now had men, full-grown men, playing women, much in the same way you did in, in Shakespeare's plays. Um, but they would they would require part of the hair to be shaved so that it was clear that um, this this person was male and it also made the person less apparently sexually attractive uh, but however they started to wear the, the kabuki actors started to wear kind of like purple ribbons over the places that were shaved and so ironically enough the the effort by the government to kind of sexually contain uh, the, these different performers in kabuki spaces, um, that effort ended up creating a kind of symbol for um, a man performing as a woman. And it became the, the kind of like that, that purple tie became a, sort of a center of attraction, right? Because it kind of signals the, um, the person who's portraying a woman. Um, then you have over here, uh, Kabuki kind of forms between the early Edo, between around 1700, 1673 to 1841. The Genroku period comes into being. Um, 
uh, a lot more money is brought into the country, Kabuki thrived and the form solidified. Um, and here you could see a, a performance of Kabuki and get a sense of what a traditional Kabuki theater looked like. Um, and yeah, and, and so what you're seeing is it, it comes from this kind of th this market, this performance market. It come there's a lot of these uh, you know red light desires. But what happens over time is that Kabuki becomes uh, very very formal, um, not in terms of it being religious or courtly, but in terms of literally the form, the way you do kabuki becomes kind of nailed down, right? And and it becomes traditional. And so what you have is something that's really not traditional at all. It's almost in opposition, maybe not intentionally, but it is practically in opposition to um, the kind of governmental forces uh, and probably religious forces as well, though I'm not entirely sure about that. Uh, as seen as kind of a disruptor of society, right? Kabuki is seen as a place where, um, which is bad for society, you know, the, the corruption of the morals of the youth, corruption of the morals of the samurai um, that was seen there. And then over time, what ends up happening is um, this somewhat renegade form becomes a traditionalist form because you end up handing down the way you do it and once you start handing down the the practices of kabuki, it becomes traditionalist in the sense that we look to the past for information on, on how to how to do this this theater practice, um, or not we. <laughs> I'm not doing it. The, the kabuki performers. Um, we have also who is known as uh, the the Shakespeare of Japan, uh, uh, Chikamatsu. Um, and he became a very, very popular playwright. He initially wrote for the Bunraku stage, which is puppet theater, which is a very interesting theater type, um, which I think we'll discuss a little later. Um, but then he started writing for Kabuki. And what you'll see is that a lot of plays are written both for Bunraku and Kabuki, that you just move the, you move the role from puppet to person. Uh, and, and he was known as that, um, and yeah, he started to incorporate a lot more literary values into the plays themselves. Um, and in, in 1840, we see here the Edo government took action against Kabuki um, and kind of tore the buildings down and, and pushed the theaters into different parts of the city. They took action against it. Um, it didn't really work. And what ends up happening is when Kabuki starts really coming back later in the 19th century and in the 20th century in a Japan that is, is um, looking towards the past for an understanding of um, for an understanding of it as as an, an empire um, Kabuki starts being labeled as a form of classical theater in the way no is and so it becomes kind of rebranded as as classical Japan Okay, and that brings us to some performance styles. Um, kabuki lasted for 12 hours in length, though later, I think around 1900, there was a law passed that reduced the maximum time to, to eight hours. Uh, and you had a collection of, of different kabuki plays going on, um, which is why it lasted so long. You had a, a bunch of plays in a, in a kabuki event. Um, Jidamono 
was plays with uh, plays with battles and samurais. You'd see samurais battling it out. Um, Shosagoto, comic dance. Uh, Siwamono is a domestic drama drawn from the newspapers. And this is what this playwright, uh, Chikamatsu, was most famous for, was the fact that he could look towards recent events and and put them on stage. And he really was was famous for that more than anything. You could almost see him as actually he's called the Shakespeare of Japan, but he's actually a lot closer to Ben Jonson in the sense that Ben Jonson would also write about the the everyday London, right? The everyday London experience. And so would he. He would write about these stories that he read about and he would make dramas out of them. Um, before he came along, though, and playwrights like him, um, a lot of the roles were not written down. Uh, you, you basically had kind of a scene listing, and actors were free and encouraged to improvise within that. And here is a, a classical depiction of Jidamono. Um, here's a picture of Bunraku, actually, before we, we go on. You could see in this picture here, here are puppets, um, and then you could see the the operators of the puppets. It's usually about three people per puppet. Uh, they dress in all black and they they operate the puppets. And Bunraku and Kabuki use the the same scripts very often. Um, and so here's a category of some other Kabuki plays. Uh, Jidayu Kogen. Uh, these are that's the type of play that's originally written for Bunraku and transferred to Kabuki. Um, and it has, uh, you know, th there's an orchestra, just like with No, where there's that kind of drum beat, which we're going to, to hear when we, we watch a little Kabuki. And the uh, these types of plays uh, tended to rely on that for coordination of the actors. Um, uh, then Jun Kabuki was plays written directly for Kabuki, and Shin Kabuki were plays written after the the opening of Japan. And these plays kind of take into account Western influence. So it was very modern. I mean, now it's like 170 years old, but back then it was starting to incorporate European influences and Europeans into the plays. Even though these, this, so this is a later Kabuki style. Um, some performance styles. So Kabuki actors, even though this was, you know, uh, very often these people were actually working as a prostitute very early on, um, Kabuki becomes more and more professionalized. And like with No, you see Kabuki actors beginning at a very young age. Um, however, they didn't reach maturity until age 40, often, not all the time, um, where you are just training until you, you are a master of Kabuki. Um, unlike the no actors who are really appreciated and loved in the center of power in Japan, uh, the kabuki actors were social outcasts. However, kind of like rock stars, uh, they became admired for their personal style, uh, what it was called kata, which just, as far as I understand, it means personal style. So how they dressed, how they looked, how they acted, um, you know, they were not favored by court. Samurai shouldn't be around them. But they became really admired amongst the masses. Um, kabuki actors, the names they used on stage is not their actual names. They It became a tradition to use a stage name. And you would pass that name down to the next generation of performer. 
And so um, Sagata Tojuro is how I'm really saying it. Um, this was a, a, a performer from, you know, the early days of Kabuki. And he would pass it down to his students and adopted children. Um, and he, as you could see here, right? Uh, and so a current performer is Sagata Tojoru IV. Um, and he, I, I don't think he's related to the other Tojoros, but he took on the name in order to revive the lineage. Um, yeah, and he he just saw the he saw this this actor as really establishing the tradition of kabuki performance and um and he wanted to to revise that and he's still performing today yeah. and there's this big naming ceremony too so when the actor takes on a name there's this public naming ceremony um where all the kabuki actors come out so character types uh so you have different types of of characters, name is exactly what it sounds like. Um, onagata were male actors who played females on and off stage, and this is—I don't know if the first onagata, but one of the early and innovative onagatas was uh, Yoshizawa Ayami, um, and it says here uh, Yoshizawa the first because. Um, there were every generation established a new one, right? The second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. I think we're on the sixth now, Yoshizawa. Uh, I'm not positive about that. We can look it up later. Um, but what what he or she did was say the onagata actor should live as a as a woman off stage, not just perform as a female on stage, in order to better occupy that space and so there, you can imagine in, in contemporary times um, if you're going to find kind of deeper English English language scholarship on uh, Kabuki there is a bit on Onagata so uh, if you're interested in Kabuki and doing some kind of research for your research paper uh, that there are sources there on Onagata accessible from our library um, so that was that was a big deal, and those actors were, were very popular. Um, Tachiyaku was the the brave hero type, and you could see here these were um, otherwise yeah, pretty pretty conventional types. Um, and yeah, Sakata Torajoro, who we we mentioned over here, was um, was a really famous romantic lead, you know, a, a kind of matinee star of kabuki. Um, and here's here's a depiction of the brave hero type. Actually, I think I think I have that wrong. Um, no, no, I'm sorry, I have that right. Yeah, that that's what the brave hero type would look like. And here is um, kind of depictions of um, of kabuki makeup. Uh, you know, there's kind of elaborate makeup that would indicate who you were. So if your face was all red, you'd be a demon. Um, you can see here with the yellow eyebrows was a ghost. Um, and then, yeah, kind of like red makeup was more indicative of, of a human person. Okay, moving on to, to costumes here. Um, costumes were very elaborate. They could weigh up to 50 pounds. 
Um, Onagata was, they were changing their outfits all the time and you'd have up to 12 kimonos per performance. So you'd leave stage and, and change kimono and come on stage in a different kimono for each, <laughs> each, uh, each act or something like that. It was, it was quite, quite an effort. Um, uh, and here he is again, Chikamatsu, the, the Shakespeare of Japan. And here's an early 17th century picture of him. Um, most famous playwright, his 1683 puppet play, The Soga Successors, uh, was the first play that really launched him into fame. Um, he wrote a lot of plays for that matinee idol, Sagata. So they, you know, just as Shakespeare wrote for Burbage specifically, um, we talked about uh, Will Kemp, that Shakespeare had to write plays for for him when his original clown left that's the the fool from lear that kind of relationship is, is going on with kabuki as well um he in 1705 he became a staff playwright for a, a kabuki theater and um i wrote that twice i don't know why sorry uh and what he became famous for was his love suicide plays and so with those what you, they're exactly what they sound like they're romeo and juliet plays that people fall in love they can't be together they commit suicide and this became a huge problem um, because Love Suicide was not only popular on stage, but apparently it sparked a bunch of suicides in the real world. And so after a while, Love Suicide plays were, uh, were outlawed because people were so concerned about the, the massive amounts of couple suicides that were occurring. Now, I don't know if this is also a bit of a, a hysterical panic or if there was actually that many people committing suicide. Typically, when you hear these stories, I, I don't know, take them for, take them with a grain of salt. Um, it's typically politicians um, moralizing. That seems the history of Kabuki seems to involve a lot of politicians moralizing about the dangers of Kabuki. But it was a it was a real political situation. We could say that much at least. Um, and here is a depiction of. Uh, one of his most famous love suicides, the love suicides at Sonakai, Sonzaki, um, Sonizaki. I have never studied Japanese, so I, I'm struggling with some of these names. Um, and here's a, a depiction of it, the last scene in which the couple ties themselves to a tree and then the male character kills himself, kills her, and then he kills himself. Um, here is... Another famous play of his, uh, the Battle of Coxinga. Um, yeah, and here is uh, another actor. You can see he, he's the seventh. So he's the seventh person to take this name, um, performing what looks to be the samurai warrior lead in that play. Okay, here's stage elements. Here's a, a picture of the stage with some designs uh, there. So the Hanamichi, which was... We saw one of those with no. It means flower path. With no, it's in the back of the theater. It's to, if you're, um, it, it's stage right, the stage right area or house left area and where the actors came on. In Kabuki, what they discovered was if you put it in the middle of the audience, what ends up happening is people love it. They go crazy uh, because you get to see, it's kind of like a three-dimensional thing. You get to see your favorite actor walking right in front of you, right, or right next to you. Um, and so you could see in this picture, 
the Hanamichi was, unlike No, going directly either down the middle of the audience or to the sides of the audience. And if you look at, like you could look at here, right? Here is a, a, a later Kabuki theater, um, but the Hanamichi is on the sides here and between the audiences. So you're, it's, it allows the actors to be closer to the audience. Um, they also developed uh, Mawari Butai, which is a rotating stage. We talked about this with Brecht, pretending like Brecht was the first person to do it. However, um, uh, Japanese stagecraft was doing it in the 18th century. Uh, and so this became a big deal. Um, siri, these are uh, special traps that actors could disappear to, like the, like a, a dropping floor, right? So the actor could jump down into this 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 drop door or this elevated this elevated door on the stage. Um, and apparently, this was very very popular. It was it was early special effects, and Kabuki was very much invested in developing special effects because again. This was not a patron-based theater. It was customer-based, much like Shakespeare was. Um, and and Shakespeare's stuff experimented with some of this. There might have been, uh, there, were, there weren't rotating stages, but there might have been trapdoors in Shakespeare as well. They actually burned down the globe firing a cannon as a special effect, which wasn't a good idea in an entirely wood building. Um, but in both cases, my point is that you're you're dealing with innovation and stagecraft innovation due to the fact that you don't have a patron, that you really do have to to attract a bunch of people into the house. And so these were early efforts. The rotating stage and the series were early efforts to do that. Um, later, and I think this is the 19th century, I don't think it's earlier than that, you had the chinori, which were these mid-air mid flying, you had cords and the actors can then attach to a wire and fly out, <laughs> fly into the theater or, or fly off the set, which was um, everybody lost their minds about. Uh, ways of taking things off and onto the stage varied. The uh, hikidugu was a small wagon. Things would be on the wagon. The wagon would come and people would pull it off. Um, and so you had kind of minimal a minimal set that was easy to take off, a set that was indicative of a place as opposed to fully embodying a place. Um, or you had the Kuroku, who were stagehands dressed in all black, who would take things on and off. Well, one of those. That was That's the basic stagecraft of Kabuki. Okay, Structures of the play. And here you could see uh, um, the, the flower path, the uh, Hanamichi being used. And you could have... Um, parts of the performance actually occurring there. And this is this is clearly the 21st century. I mean, it's a photograph. Um, but they're kind of revising that there. Okay? So the pacing of the play had its own particular philosophy. Joha Q, uh, philosophy of the pacing. Um, and really it should start slow, build up, and fast, which is what those three words hyphened together actually mean. Slow start, build up, and fast. Um, each play is five acts. A third act usually contains a tragic element. Fourth act is usually a big battle. And then Q is the very, very short last act. It, you, all, you wrap things up very quickly. So Kabuki 
the pacing increases over time. It doesn't build to a point like with Aristotle and then, uh, who is that? Oh, okay. Um, and then trickle down, uh, you know, like, like with classical theater, the way, you know, people in the West have, have advocated it kind of, it, it builds and builds and builds and, and moves faster and faster along. Okay, and that's the end of that. All right, and so let's take a look at a little bit of uh, Kabuki before we move into um, Beijing or Peking Opera. Um, and we might stop this video early just because there it is. Uh, we, we do have time considerations. Kabuki is a Japanese traditional theatre form which originated in the Edo period at the beginning of the 17th century and was particularly popular among townspeople. After 1868, when Japan opened up to Western influences, Actors strove to heighten the reputation of kabuki among the upper classes and to adapt the traditional styles to modern tastes. Today, kabuki is the most popular of the traditional styles of Japanese drama. Important characteristics of Kabuki theatre include its particular music, costumes, stage devices and props, as well as specific plays, language and acting styles, such as the mi, in which the actor holds a characteristic pose to establish his character. Originally, 
Both men and women acted in kabuki plays. But eventually, only male actors performed the plays, a tradition that has remained to the present day. Male actors who specialize in women's roles are called onagata. Two other major role types are aragoto, rough style, and wagoto, soft style. The actors speak in a monotone voice and are accompanied by traditional instruments. Kabuki plays are about historical events and moral conflict in affairs of the heart. The Kabuki stage is equipped with several devices such as revolving stages and trapdoors, through which the actors may appear and disappear. Another speciality of the kabuki stage is a footbridge, hanamichi, that extends into the audience. Keshi, the special makeup, provides an element of style that is easily recognizable, even by those unfamiliar with the art form. Okay. Okay, here I am. All right. Good. Um should be back. Excellent. So, any questions about that? That was that was a lot. Um Okay, good. Uh, yeah, so that was that kind of um, is the other major that with Bunraku is the other major traditionalist theater and good. and so in our effort to play catch up, we'll take a look now at uh, take a look now at the the Beijing or Peking Opera. Let's do that. One second. Okay, so go a little faster with this one. Um, 
like with no early performances came from religious ritual um what we'd have is uh wu priests the priestly class in in china would have elaborate seances um, that had performative features in the 8th century bc these performances became very popular um, over the course of hundreds of years uh, in, in into the Han period, we see acrobats and mimes beginning to come into China. Um, you know, over time, uh, this is kind of what what we have. You have a kind of religious rituals and kind of acrobatics, mime art, um, and what we see in uh, 600 A.D. Uh, the Sui dynasty grows in power. Um, one of the emperors, Yang Ti, opens a training school for performers. So you start to see uh, a location for performers to develop. Um, later, a, a, an emperor in the Tang dynasty opens another performance area with a training school, the, the Pear Garden, um, which develops performance further. By the year 1000, the Song Dynasty takes control of China, and what ends up happening is the novel becomes very, very popular. Um, and the the idea of narrative, of, uh, of being entertained by a narrative, became all the rage. And what people started doing is, is theater performers started writing out narratives for their plays with people reciting it. It wasn't, wasn't necessarily performed, but people reciting it at the beginnings of these plays. And this is when you start to see narrative entering into these other performance traditions, which had started off kind of um, uh, varying, but began to be centralized in these different schools. And um, two types of dramas performed, one in the North, one in the South. Um, uh, Zen Yu, I think it's pronounced, um, or Zen Zhu. Uh, these are plays that had four acts. They had 10 to 20 songs selected from about 500 pre existing melodies. Uh, it was a seven note scale accompanied by a gong drum, clappers, flutes, and lute. Um, only the protagonist sings, and with each act, the, the vocal timbre and the rhyme scheme. Then uh, the rhythm would change. Uh, the The plays in the South they had thirty to fifty acts. Um, they used a pentatonic scale accompanied by a bamboo flute, um, and so they, these incredibly long and elaborate plays would go on there. Um, well, how these became known as Beijing operas or, or Peking operas, Beijing being the word for. Um, being the word used for the capital after uh, the communist revolution of 1949. So they're, they're interchangeable words. Um, in 1790, a number of performers came to Beijing to celebrate the emperor's 80th birthday. They liked it in Beijing. They liked the, the people. They got to know each other. They started performing together, and they stayed. And here's some kind of early folk theater that was being established. Um, like a little bit with very early kabuki, the initial Beijing operas didn't have um, distinct scripts. The kind of southern tradition of having 30 to 50 acts per play, it was far too elaborate and too complicated. It didn't last. And so what you start to see are talented actors with sort of um, 
by distinct scripts, I mean not worded scripts. They had kind of bullet point style scripts with what's going on in each scene. And the actors were free to take on the role for themselves and improvise a lot. And so these plays fell into two, or these improvisations fell into two major categories, civil and military, stories of the people, stories of the army. Um, these plays also used only a table and two chairs, but used them in a number of ways. So you could build a wall. You could show that there's a wall with these table and chairs. You could be in a boat. You could be climbing a mountain. Um, and that, that became the tradition was that this very simple set was used in a collection of imaginative ways. Um, and you start to have distinct character types developing. Um, Xing, Dan, Jing, and Cho. Um, and yeah, they were, and there was different uh, subtypes for each type of role. Um, but these were, this is what the actors would specialize in, one of these four. Okay. Um, props were indicative on stage um so for example the silver banner would be water and you could see that in the lower right corner the picture of the silver banner uh, and that would just represent water right so you'd use instead of having a set do it you would have props do it um yellow flags would indicate you were on a chariot or something like that um and acting became very very stylized so one example is um if you wanted to point at something, there were 70 different variations for how you point or gesture. And so that became an important part of, um, of Beijing opera. Um, actors had color-coded dress to indicate type, what, what type they were. So if you're white, here's some examples. White represents old characters. Red, these were loyal characters and brides. Um, yellow were royal uh, and you had over 300 costumes in a in a play. So the, they were very elaborate, a lot of costume changes. And yes, also women were allowed to perform in uh, Beijing opera. Um, makeup, you had one character who wears makeup. There were 250 makeup designs that existed. Uh, and makeup also let you know what type of person it is. So if there's a lot of white around the eye, for example, that person was probably bad. Um, like this person here, uh, from this kind of travel guide I, I was looking at, uh, there's a of, um, travel guide to different um, uh, Beijing opera houses, and they were showing behind the scenes, and you could see here he's putting on a lot of black around the eyes, so that means this character is probably a, a good person. Um, and if you're covered in green paint, you are a demon. So... There you go. Here is some more uh, how makeup looks like when it's it's fully completed. So you weren't wearing masks, but you were you you did wear a lot of makeup. Um, yeah, you could see like a mischievous character in, in over here, um, the character with white and red. Okay, and that was very quick. Um, I want to do oh God. I want to do a video of. Um, of Beijing Opera. However, let's see how long. Yeah. Oh, we don't have enough time. <laughs> um, okay. So what if we push this off to, to Monday and we can start with a little Beijing Opera, learn a little more about it. Um, it's the, the problem of wanting to cover too many 
too many plays, too many types of plays in this class. Um, but what we'll do is we'll end a little early now. We'll end about two minutes early. And then on, uh, on Monday, we'll pick this up along with uh, George Buchner. All right. Um, any questions before we go?